We are looking at the gospel according to Galatians. We're looking at Galatians and we are learning that the rich faith that we have can be entitled the gospel or good news. And this good news is not simply a doctrine or a fact. It is that. But it is something to be experienced. It's not simply something to know the gospel, but it's also something to experience. Paul very often in other letters will say, use the terminology, the power of the gospel. So that it's not simply a, a, a bedrock conviction and belief, but it's something that is working its way out in our life. It's transforming us. My heart has been so encouraged in your response, in your encouragement to last week's sermon. But I want to tell you how I experienced that and what you experienced. What you experienced was no good sermon or good preaching, even though the content was good. What you experienced was the gospel. It wasn't an encounter with a good sermon or a a good delivery system. It was a personal and transforming experience of your heart and God's heart through the work of Jesus Christ telling you once again of the good news which your heart longs to hear. You are refreshed. You were strengthened. You were transformed as a son and daughter. And my prayer, Lord, do it again. Do it again and again and again. Galatians, probably unlike any other book in history, perhaps Romans, has a history of transforming people, churches, denominations, and whole cultures and nations. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And Martin Luther, in writing his commentary on both Galatians and Romans, said what the world needs is a pure unadulterated, that means unrevised, unedited gospel. And it created a group of protesters. A group of protesters, now known as Protestants, who said, we agree. And we will follow the scriptures and the gospel. And that's what Paul's up against with the Galatian churches because they're really, as we learned last week, they're scratching their head. And we, some of them have even, as it says in chapter 1, which was not printed, uh, in verse 6, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting. Uh, Paul is seeing some troublemakers. They're known as Judaizers. They're, they're Jewish Christians who hold on to the law, and the gospel. And so they've distorted it, as he says in verse 7. They trouble you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. This week, 
again, we want to experience a pure, unrevised, undistorted gospel of Christ. And one way that you'll know that you experience it is by freedom. In Galatians 2, verse 4, we read, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to despise out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. So a mark of the true and real gospel is our heart feels set free from guilt, from shame, from legalism, from list, from to-do list of, of what a good Christian is to do. And we now experience freedom instead of slavery. So that the things that we do do now flow from God's love, but this not in a distortion of we do these things for His love. So Paul this week is still in this section. He's defending himself by defending He's defending the gospel by defending himself. He wants to give clarification that this gospel, you can read it in verses 11 and 12, and this is the theme where he says, I would have you know, I would have you know, church, I would have you know, Galatian congregations, I would have you know, Two Rivers Christians, I would have you know, Two Rivers Presbyterian Church, that the gospel that was preached is not man's gospel. In verse 12, why? Because I didn't receive it from a man, nor was I taught it. I received it from a revelation from Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not man's gospel. It's not authored by man. But the point of origination, the point of origination was not from my pen, but it was from God's pen. The author is not me, the Apostle Paul. The author is God. And now he's going to defend this in three ways. He's going to tell us that this gospel is received by grace. And if the gospel is received by grace and not by something that we do, then that is evidence... That this gospel is authored and the point of origination is with God. And I'll show you that in a moment. Secondly, that this gospel is revealed by Christ. It's not revealed as a mystery by Paul and his wisdom. The accusation of Paul was this. You became a convert where that strange road to uh, Damascus, Acts 9, and then you went to Jerusalem and you became a seminary student. You were interned by those 11 apostles that are in Jerusalem. And you probably should have stayed longer because yours is kind of half-baked. Uh, you know, we're not really clear. They're, they're still forming, as it were. They're still writing their Gospels. It's still new in, in the early church. And so, Paul, you're, you need to go back to class. And he's saying, no. I'll tell you who taught me, not the apostles. Jesus Christ 
personally. And that will be evidence that the gospel is not from Paul, not from man. The, the point of origination is not a person. The point of origination is God. What difference does that make, by the way? It makes all the difference in the world. Because if God authored it, then that will be the real plan of our salvation and our sanctification. We don't have, we don't have any room for doubt, but if a man wrote it, if a man wrote it, even a man that loved God, if he wrote it solely on his own, if he's the point of origination, there's always going to be that doubt. It must come from God. And then lastly, he says, I'm going to show you that this gospel originated with God when you look at my story. And you see how when others hear my story, they don't bring glory to me. Oh, what a testimony! They bring glory to God. And that is further evidence that this did not, the point of origination is not with a man, the point of origination is with God. All right, let's look. Let's look at the first one. Verse 13. Now, these people were very well aware of Paul's conversion and of his background. And so what Paul does here is he says, I received this gospel solely by God's grace. And he, he brings out some facts from his autobiography. He says in verse 13, My former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, my peers. I was, I was, I was outstripping them. The New English uh, Version Bible says, I was outstripping. I was ahead of my class. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He, you can read about this in Acts 9. But, and we'll be going back and forth there, but I'll just give you a part of it in Acts 26. In Acts 26, verses 10 and 11. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul, so what, do you, what say you? Die. Verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues. He's going in to the synagogues. And all the buzz, a synagogue like a church, all the buzz was, wow, what do we do with Rabbi Jesus? He's been crucified, but there's evidence that he rose again. And we have all of these disciples out there saying that 40 days after his resurrection, they communicated with him and they saw him ascend. And then their lives are being transformed. All that is a buzz in the synagogue. And Paul's sitting right there and saying, hey, uh, after the service, can we talk? Lock them up. Die. And so he's infiltrated these churches to grab them. Tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. We believe that he would have given them a chance to basically deny Christ, perhaps even under 
torture. But there's, there's two characteristics that he gives here in his bit of autobiography to, to show us that it was received by grace. He says that he was violent and he was extremely zealous. He was a persecutor of those who had received this gospel. So he not only hated the new believers, the new Christians, but he hated the gospel. And then it says that he was extremely zealous, so much so that he says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism. He was looking, he was, by what he was doing, his persecution of another human being reflected his efforts for his holiness and his righteousness. In other words, he did not do it because he was an evil man. He did not do it because he was a bad person. He didn't even do it because he was selfish and had his own agenda. It was the agenda of all of those in the Sanhedrin. He was someone that with each capture, with each bit of violence, he would advance in his own holiness. In other words, he would look and come to people and he would say, you must conform to this gospel, which I am a part of, or else I will hurt you. Now, what a bad person he is, right? Aren't you glad you don't know anybody like that that believes that false gospel? That, that God will, will see me as right? God will see me as right if I, if I can't, if I get people around me to conform to what I believe, then God will like me more. If I get people around me to conform, then that reflects very well on my righteousness and my holiness. And if I can't, I'm going to keep trying even to the point of violence. In my family, in my family, uh, I have a niece who brought up in a Christian home. A member of her church, always went to Christian school, went on mission trips, had a glowing testimony in Christ. And a couple of years ago, she came out of a closet. And my brother, who, I've got two brothers, and my brother, her father, really loves her to pieces. But he began to apply the law, believing a false gospel, which is so tricky. He became, he became very concerned about how her choices, how her sin pattern reflected on him. And so he began to issue ultimatums. Now, I'm not here to judge my brother. I mean, we've had loads of conversations, and, 
about this. Because you see, I've, I've done the same thing. Even as a pastor to get you in the church, to, to get you to go along with a program or this is what we want all two rivers to do and this, oh, this is what good Christians must do and, and, and it'll reflect so well on me as a pastor if we do that and God will like me so much better. Even to the point that we might judge people that don't confirm her. We might do something Reminiscent of violence. In other words, we're trying to advance even our own holiness by getting other people to advance and conform to what we're doing. Now, I've stayed too long on this point. And I, well, I can't apologize, but I, I want you to see that Paul says that there is evidence because that was what he was doing. He was advancing his holiness. He was advancing his false gospel, his religion, by making people conform or violently and enthusiastically killing them. John Stott says this, A man about Paul, a man in this mental and emotional state is in no mood to have his mind changed. Only God could reach him, and only God did. Are you with me? What they were saying is, Paul, you've become like a televangelist. We know that you are a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin. You are advancing, and we know you say right here, yes, you are a violent persecutor of the church of God. You are extremely zealous. Yeah, you are all these things, but now, kind of like a televangelist, you're riding a new religion. You're, you're, you're forming a new group, a new religion. And he's saying, huh. There's no way. I was hell bound. Nothing, nothing would have redirected me. Nothing would have changed my story. Nothing would have changed that uh, trajectory for me. Because the point of origin did not lie with me. It lied with God. God began a new work. And that by grace. I was a persecutor of the church. In Acts 9... On this road to Damascus, he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that very voice is the voice of Jesus. What he's saying is, here is evidence that this gospel is from God. It transformed me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. It's all grace. I didn't deserve it because I didn't earn it by my holiness. My holiness was killing Jesus and his people. He didn't reward me. He came to the least and the worst of these. And this gospel by God alone and his grace alone transformed me. And in that is hope for us. And hope for all family members. And hope for all of those that we're in a relationship with that may be violent, and they too may be enthusiastic about even a sinful lifestyle. At this gospel of grace, you can pray. And certainly look for opportunities to articulate that there is a grace from God available not to the goody, good to, good, you know, not to the clean Christian people, not to good people, but for the least of people, for the worst of people, even for blasphemers and people that are persecuting the church and Christians now, they can, by God's grace, be transformed. 
You were. I was. Because the point of origination, a man's gospel, here's the point, a man's gospel won't transform anybody. God's gospel will. All right, secondly, he says that he, this was revealed to him by Christ. Verses 15 and 16. Now in verses 13 and 14, he uses the pronoun I. I was advancing. I was violent. I was extreme. But then in 15 and 16, he changes it to God. And so the emphasis now is, it's not me, it's him. And throughout this, he shows us over and over again, God initiates, he takes the first step, he comes to us when we're not deserving, and he shows us grace. God takes the first step, and when he comes, he doesn't come with a law, he comes with with strength and pardon and forgiveness and life, and that all at no cost. That's grace. And so he says in verse 15, it was at birth that he set me apart before I was born. Now this is a Hebrew phrase that basically says, when I was born, or he set me apart in my mother's womb, or when I began life, when I was still helpless, and not able to do anything, he put that grace upon me there. It's predestination. It is without merit, or it is, it is grace and mercy and favor. It's not a reward. It's not earned. And so he says, that's where he began. And he called me by his grace, and he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And you have a footnote there that probably says that that Greek can also be read in me. He revealed the Son to me, not simply visually as he did on the road to Damascus, but he revealed him to my heart. Romans 16, 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Now that, he is ending his uh, epistle to Romans. But what I want you to see in this mouthful are a couple of things. He says that this gospel is my gospel. And by that, he doesn't mean the point of origin was me. That I'm an optimist, and so I just kind of tweaked. I just got rid of the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments and obedience, and I just got this optimistic gospel. No, it does, when he says my gospel, he doesn't mean the point of origin is him. When he says my gospel, he means it's personal. It's my gospel. It's mine. It was spoken to me. It wasn't just a crowd gospel. It wasn't just a church gospel. I heard it. It's my gospel. It is so for me. It's, a, it's perfectly scripted for me. That's what he means. And he says that he got it through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Which is what I pray every Sunday morning and of course through the week and then the officers as well. It's not that you'd hear Phil Stogner talking ahead but that Jesus Christ would preach to you. What a better sermon. And then, 
what Jesus Christ preached to him was the revealing of this mystery that's always been there. The gospel has always been there, but it's been cloaked in a mystery such that now we see that that sin offering of a sacrificial lamb, that was representative of Jesus. We see that the Passover meal we celebrate today as the Lord's communion, all that is revealed by the preaching of Jesus personally to the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we see what is happening in the heart of Paul on the Damascus Road. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, those in this world, B.C., before Christ, are blind. They can't see the gospel. And they can't see the glory of Christ in the gospel. Such that he died in my place and now I am without cost in receiving him. I am forgiven. That is, that must be revealed to us. You can't just get it in your study. You can't just get it in man's wisdom. It has to be revealed to you, and then that's when you, like Paul, see it. It has to be revealed by Christ. Seeing the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, For Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here, again, I want you to see that what Paul is doing is he's offering evidence by saying this gospel is revealed by Christ to the Judaizers who are saying, you wrote it. The point of origin is with you. And he's saying, no, no, no. The point of origin was with God and by His grace. And it came to me by Christ. I didn't, far from making it up, I'm just a messenger of what He personally revealed to me. Have you had that experience? For that experience is not simply for the apostles and not simply for Paul. That experience is for every Christian. We have externally, we have his word. Remember in Acts 9, where from heaven, a voice from heaven, the word from heaven, Jesus himself spoke to Paul. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting persecuting. Jesus personally communicated through his word to Paul. And then we read later when Ananias came that Paul was blinded. And in Acts 9, Ananias comes and he prays for Paul to receive the Holy Spirit. And And Paul receives the Holy Spirit and scales fall from his eyes And he rises, and then he begins, well, I'll read it to you. In Acts 9, he rose, verse 18, was baptized, set his life apart right there. And he said, I'm a believer, sign me up. Took food, and he was strengthened. 
Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He is a convert. It was revealed to his heart by the word that we have and then by that Holy Spirit internally. That caused him to receive the revelation that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Now, I know that sounds really technical, but that's what happens. And again, it was Jesus Christ personally. So, this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus just doesn't speak to us as Two Rivers Church. He speaks to each of his little lambkins by name. He knows you by name. Paul proceeds to offer three alibis here. He offers three alibis because, remember, they're accusing him of being an intern. He's, he, you went to seminary in Jerusalem. That's where this is coming from. And the apostles, do they know what you're teaching? I think you need to be in preaching class a little bit longer before you, you're ready to be set loose on the world, Paul. And he's saying, no, I didn't go to seminary when I was in Jerusalem. He offers three alibis. He said, first of all, I went to Arabia. We see this in verse 17. Well, he, says, he starts in verse 16. He says, I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. I went into Arabia. Now, Arabia is kind of mysterious. We don't really know everything that went on there, but it was like what we call a sabbatical. There was time for quiet. There was time for reflection and meditation. Paul knew a lot about Jesus. And he certainly knew all of the Old Testament, which Jesus says, all of this book talks about me. And Paul now was seeing it. One way that you know that you've got the real gospel is you see Jesus in Leviticus. You see Jesus in, in um, Lamentations. You see Jesus all over the place. And so Paul now is in Arabia for three years. And scholar after scholar says that's no accident. The disciples were with Jesus for three years walking in the wilderness, learning from Jesus at his feet. The great rabbi, son of God, Jesus. Now Paul, like those 11 apostles, is in the wilderness on sabbatical at Jesus' feet, and he's learning. Jesus is preaching to him, and all that he knew, he's drilling it down into his heart. His story is being rewritten. Secondly, we see uh, the Apostle Paul says here that I returned to Damascus, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, stayed there 15 days. So what he's saying is, look, I was in Jerusalem but I was there, and I saw Peter. And that word for Saul is the word historisa. You can say historia, history, or history buff. It means sightseer. It also means to go and have coffee and just make yourself known to someone. Hi, I'm Saul Paul. Oh, hi, I'm the Apostle Peter. That was all it was. Now remember, they're saying he was groomed and then set loose prematurely. And he's saying, no, no, 
I've been away in Arabia for three years, soaking it up, soaking it up. God, God just, you know, I've been in a getaway to get more of God. I've been with a getaway with God to get God in. And then I went to Jerusalem, but it was just kind of a meet and greet. And then he says that he went to Syria and Cilicia in verse 21. Now that's very far north of Jerusalem where the apostles were. That's like saying, I went to Siberia. That's like saying, I went somewhere that there is no cellular service. I've been totally out of touch. So much so that in verse 22, he says, people didn't know what I looked like. If I'd been in Jerusalem, sitting at the feet of the apostles, if I'd been training under them, and they were the point of origination, then people would have known me by face. They would have been, I'd have been a celebrity. He who formerly persecuted the church and killed my brother is now, no. He said, people, I was unknown because I have been away. My revelation was solely by the preacher, teacher, Jesus Christ because he's the point of origin of this gospel. Now, again, we... We need times to get away. We need times to get away with just God's word, with all assurance that Jesus will meet you when you get away with him. Whether it's time that you carve out each day, whether it's time that you chart out a getaway in the course of the week. My getaway day is Friday. Uh, my good friend and brother Larry chided me because I didn't answer a text on Friday. And I said, you know, I'm real funny about that. I said, my family many times has a hard time getting a hold of me on Fridays. And the reason is because I want to get away and I don't want any distractions. I don't want any noise. But I sure want God. And you know what he says every time? The gospel, you're my son by grace alone and not by what you do. No matter how good a sermon you preach or bad sermon, you're still my boy. And that through Jesus, who was not reluctant to die for you. And you know what? You're mine forever. The riches of heaven are your inheritance. You are mine. And you have a home there. And it, it always it always happens. That, that constant revelation by God, not simply another person. Are you getting away? And then lastly, notice that he says that Paul says this gospel is one that is recited for God's glory. Now, I... I'd love to have more time with this last one, maybe even a whole sermon, but I can't. <clears throat> but you have a story, and I have a story, and our stories are very, very important. Emily Smith um, read a, a, a book summary. I didn't read the whole book, but the book is called The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. Now, this is not a Christian book. It's a secular book. But the, the subtitle, 
crafting a life that matters. We want our life to count. We want our life to matter. We want our life to have purpose and meaning. And she, in her book, says there's four pillars to live a life that has meaning and purpose and that matters. And one of those pillars is storytelling. And I quote, Storytelling says that we all have a story to tell and that we help one another by sharing our stories. Furthermore, though our stories are based on the facts of our lives, we should choose how to tell them and embellish them. And we should choose a redemptive interpretation that builds meaning. What she's saying is, we all have a story, and, and it's important. If you want to have a life that is meaningful and it matters, then you need to learn how to tell your story. And you need to have to share your story in such a way that it's encouraging. Maybe you need to embellish it a little bit. And maybe you need to choose to gloss over certain parts and highlight other parts. What Paul says is, I'm not going to embellish my story. I'm not going to gloss over anything. My story is written by Him. The point of origination from my story is God. And because of that, that is to His glory. And it's further evidence that the point of origination is not my penmanship, but it's His hand on my life that is writing the story, and the story is the gospel in my life. John Newton's Amazing Grace. If you know his story, his testimony, that's a song of his testimony, of his story. And the story gives my story. As a Christian, your story gives God glory. And let me tell you why it's important that you, you at least be prepared to share your story, how you came to, to, to receive the gospel, or how the gospel is currently impacting your life. Because the gospel is going to transform you. It is transforming you. I love my church. And I love you. And you really are good people. You are great people. You know, I, your people, I think with the exception of only one person here, I'd be willing to share my vacation with you. I'm not going to tell you who that one person is. I'm going to leave, let you all wonder. Kind of like the disciples at the table. One of you is going to betray me. Is it me? Is it me? But if you don't share your story to God's glory, they're going to, people in your world, in your relationship, they're just going to think you're a good person. That's called self-glory. You're sharing your story already. But if you don't connect the dots, I'm not saying that you have to become, uh, that you have to become a, a, a great evangelist. But you need to love your story because it is also where you see the glory of God who took you, I once was lost, now I'm found. By grace, revealed to me personally through Christ, and now I've got a life. I've got a life that matters. And I can tell my story. And it, and it is a way that I can, 
I can give God great, great glory by making him big in my story. And I don't have to embellish it because it's true. And so, this morning, once again, we have the gospel in a story here on this table. It's like chapter 1. On the very night that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a traitor, but according to God's design and plan, he took bread and he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you in your place. Eat this in remembrance of me. Chapter 3. In the same manner after supper, he took a cup. And he said, this cup represents my shed blood. He's hearkening back. It's the night of the Passover. He's connecting what is about to be done to years earlier with Moses leading the people out of the bondage of Egypt through the Passover. The firstborn's lives were taken except for the blood around the lentil. Those were safe. God's people were safe. This is representing my shed blood for the remission or the washing away of all sins. Your life will be passed over and you'll be my people. Drink this in remembrance of me because as often as you do this, chapter 4, you celebrate my death on your behalf until I return and I will return. And so, once again, this story brings him glory and it's our story as we participated in this we're included as well the gospel has been received by us by God's grace to us if you heard the gospel again this morning it's because Jesus Christ himself has told you from his word and then we're encouraged now to take strength from this story, to add these chapters to ours, to be able to recite them to God's great glory wherever we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would take this bread and this cup and you'd set it apart for your holy purposes and your design, for the honoring and the proclaiming of your son's death on our behalf, and for the strengthening by the power of the Holy Spirit in our inner members that we might live as your sons and daughters. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.